Okay, well, welcome back. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get into our next session. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the, the privilege we have of being here today, of studying your word, and I pray that as we get into the book of Jude, that we will have a better understanding of what it means to earnestly contend for the faith. So be with us now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our second presentation, we are going through the book of Jude, and the title for this message is Earnestly Contending for the Faith. Do you, need, do you think there needs to be a few more people earnestly contending for our faith? Yes. Amen. So, again, we're looking at the role of Michael in the great controversy, and we're going to pick it up in verse 9, and then we're going to come back to the, to the start of the chapter. So verse 9 says, Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. So verse 9 starts off with a word yet, so it's drawing a contrast. And it says, Michael contended with the devil over the body of Moses, meaning there was warfare, there was contention, there was a contending between Christ and Satan. So the book of Jude is describing great controversy warfare again between Christ and Satan. So what is the book of Jude talking about? Is, is the book of Jude talking about the resurrection of Moses? Is that what this book is really based on? And I think you're going to see very quickly that that is just an illustration to describe the contending that needs to be taking place. Christ, or Michael, is the example given to us of how to contend for the faith. He contended with the devil over the body of Moses. Okay. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of the book of Jude. Verse 1 in the book of Jude. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. So notice, when Jude addresses the believers, he says to those who are sanctified by God the Father. So the early Christian fathers of our faith, so to speak, they believed in sanctification. He's addressing those who are sanctified by God the Father. Now you're going to see why he addresses those who are sanctified because what you're going to see is that there are teachers that are going to come into the church who, who attack the doctrine of sanctification. And this becomes part of the contending that is going to take place. So Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, addresses them who are sanctified. It doesn't say who will be sanctified. It says to them who are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. So here's just a, an initial greeting and we're sanctified by who? God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Okay. Now he gets into his message starting in verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. So Jude, 
he was going to just write an epistle to the Christian believers about common salvation, righteousness by faith, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He was just going to give them some encouragement about the way of salvation. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he found that it was needed that he should write them and exhort them, meaning give strong encouragement. If you exhort someone, the, that word means to give strong encouragement. It's just not like, hey, I'm just kind of giving you a suggestion that you might want to think about possibly contending for the faith. No. Jude is saying, you need to earnestly contend. I am exhorting you. Please, I am pleading with you, contend for the faith. That's the spirit that this epistle is written in. It's not just like, oh, yeah, you know, you might want to think about being a Seventh-day Adventist in the last days of Earth's history. No, if Jude were alive today, he would say, please be a faithful Seventh-day Adventist. Contend for the faith that was once delivered to the pioneers. Okay. It is needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. You know, sometimes I run into people and they say, oh, I see all this bad stuff coming into the church, but I'm just going to pray about it and leave it with God. That's not what the Bible teaches us to do. The Bible teaches us to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Listen, Satan is fighting with all-out warfare to destroy the woman. We just talked about that. He's going to do whatever he can to tear this church down. And the last thing God needs is for his faithful servants to sit idly by while they see the, while they see the church being destroyed. In fact, and I didn't plan on using this quote, but Ellen White says, neutrality in a crisis is the greatest form of hostility that we can show to God earnestly contending for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Now the question is, Jude, why are you telling us that we need to earnestly contend for the faith? I mean, this is still in the first century. Shouldn't everything be fine and well in the church? I mean, we still have people alive who saw Jesus when he was on this earth. I mean, why would there be any problem in the church? The church is just going to sail right on through, is it not? Church is going to go through. Don't worry. The church is going to go through. We don't need to worry about it. Listen, just because the church is going to go through doesn't mean that there doesn't need to be a contention, to be a battle, a warfare. Okay, so what happens to the church? Okay. Verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares, which means unnoticed, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, there's a lot going on here. Okay. Certain men crept in unnoticed, undetected. And they are turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the question is, who are these certain men? Do you think these are just 
few warmers in the church who might raise their hand in Sabbath school and say, I'm not sure if I believe in Ellen White, and everyone just kind of like, oh, forget them. Is that what this is talking about? I mean, would Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, feel compelled to write an entire epistle that would become part of the canon of Scripture if he was concerned about a few pew warmers that most of the church wasn't taking heed to? No way. This is addressing an issue that would become pervasive in the first century church and will be a problem in the professed church of God to the very end of time. So the very first issue that we see, we have certain men crept unawares. And a, a good description for these are going to be false teachers. Come in. These false teachers are turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. What does lasciviousness mean? Yeah. Right. You turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And this word, yeah, it can mean lust, licentiousness. In other words, the grace of God covers you. You have license to keep sinning, and the grace of God will, con will continue to cover you. And, you know, Paul even addresses in Romans 6, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? In the very verse before, he had said, Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And so people would take that and say, Where there's more sin, there's more grace. If we just accept Jesus as our Savior, if we sin and if we sin more, we're going to have more grace. I'll just, I'll, I, this, and, and you know what? People love that teaching. You know why? Because it appeals to your carnal heart. You don't have to change. You can, in theory, accept Jesus as your Savior, and your, your heart might even be touched and have some cords of sympathy with the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you. Oh, wow, he did so much. And then uh, you turn right around and say, boy, I'm so glad that he did it all, and I don't have to surrender. I don't have to change. Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Is that an issue just of the first century church? No, no way. We still see it today, and we're going to develop that as we go here. So they have turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, and they deny our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you deny our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you're not going to go out and say, oh, I don't believe in Jesus. Okay. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Okay. So 
These false teachers in the book of Jude, they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, and they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So they are denying Jesus Christ. So the contrast comes in verse 4, or a, a further explanation, is that you either are denying Christ or you are confessing him, right? You can, you're, you're either going to deny our Lord Jesus Christ or you're going to confess him. And there are false prophets, false teachers in the world. So here's how you know if someone's a false teacher. Do they teach that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? If they do, they are of God. If not, they are the spirit of what? Antichrist. Now that's interesting. So these teachers, they're denying Jesus. What are they denying about Jesus? They are basically saying Jesus did not come in the flesh. Yeah, they're saying he has an advantage over us. And here's what happens. Jesus had an advantage over us. We can't be like him, therefore his grace covers us because we can't overcome as he overcame. Now, do you see that's the very issue in the great controversy that we just talked about in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 says Christ was caught up to the throne. How did he get there? He overcame. What happens to God's last day church? They overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus says you can overcome as I overcame. But these teachers are saying, no, you can't. Jesus wasn't really like us. Don't worry about it. His grace will just cover us. You'll just keep sinning. You won't really be like Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is saying to the Laodicean church, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame. So Jesus is saying to his last day church, overcome as I overcame. Yeah, these false teachers are saying you can't overcome. Don't worry about it. It's okay. His grace will cover your lascivious lifestyle. His grace basically gives you license to sin. So here's the issue then. You have these false teachers that have crept into the church. They came in undetected. They crept in unaware. And they have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to read to you a statement from Ellen White, which addresses the issue of turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. This is Review and Herald, June 7, 1887. She says, Is it our sin, the sin of the Nicolaitans, turning the grace of God into to lasciviousness? Okay, so now notice what Ellen White has just done. The turning the grace of God into lasciviousness is the doctrine of who? The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Where do you see the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? You see it in Revelation chapter 2. And you see it more than once. So here's what we can say now. Turning the grace of God into lasciviousness is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans turns the grace of God into lasciviousness. They deny our Lord Jesus Christ, and they, when you deny the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not confessing him. And, and in order to confess him, you need to teach that he came in the flesh, that he came in the flesh that we have. If you do not teach that, you are of Antichrist. Now, what you're going to see is that these false teachers that crept into the church that Jude is earnestly contending against, 
their teachings laid the foundation for the rise of the papacy. And with the doctrine of the papacy, the doctrine of the papacy at the end of time will prepare people to receive the mark of the beast. So this is great controversy warfare. Are you going to receive the seal of God or the mark of the beast? So the book of Jude is all about telling us how to earnestly contend, how to avoid receiving the mark of the beast, and how to receive the seal of God. Okay. When you look at the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, you're going to see that the first church, the, first of, the church of Ephesus, hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And then you come down through Smyrna. And then you come to the third church of Pergamos. And in Pergamos, you see in verse 13 that Satan dwells there. You see that in verse 14, they hold the doctrine of Balaam. And they have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So by the time you get to the church of Pergamos, this is the third church. You see that Satan dwells there. That means that Satan is behind these teachings, by the way. Let's not sugarcoat this stuff. Those who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness are being directed by Satan. So Satan, he's orchestrating things. They have the doctrine of Balaam. And they hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. What's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Now, just to prove to you that this is connected, when you go back to the book of Jude, when you get to verse, let me get this, verse 11, you see that these teachers have ran greedily after the error of who? Verse 11, of Balaam. Notice this, Balaam is connected to the church of Pergamos where Satan dwells and where they hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. These false teachers are turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, which is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and they have run after the greed of Balaam. This is the same thing that we're talking about here. No, the third church, Pergamos, because Smyrna... Um, the second church only receives commendation. They endured persecution. They didn't have any um, rebuke. The second and the sixth church, no rebuke. Yeah. Um, in the literal church of Pergamos, it was there in the first century, but then um, the, the church of Pergamos in the prophetic timeline is 313 to 538 as the papacy develops itself. So this teaching of turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, you find it's the church of Ephesus, which represents the first church, the first century church, they fight against it. Then Smyrna, which is 100 to 313, they're just persecuted and they're blessed of God. But then 313 to 538, as the papacy is developing itself theologically, this is how they do it. With the teaching that you can turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, his righteousness will cover your sins. They deny our Lord Jesus Christ by saying he didn't come in the flesh and 1 John 4 3, 3 says if you say he doesn't come in the flesh that's antichrist well who's the antichrist the papacy okay so now we see how the papacy is developing here and so Jude under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is saying earnestly contend for the faith this is developing the antichrist that's going to go against Christ we need to contend against this this is great controversy warfare between Christ and Satan 
Continuing on, verse 5, I will, put, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Verse 6, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Okay. What's, so, we're, so here we have verses 5, 6, and 7. Judah saying, let me remind you of some things because you have these false teachers that are turning the grace of God into lasciviousness they are denying our Lord Jesus Christ they, in other words they are not confessing that he came in the flesh this is antichrist so let me remind you about some stories here so that you don't follow this path he so the, what's the first example that he uses in verse 5 So there was the Exodus. People came out of Egypt. They were delivered from their captors. And that's an illustration of being delivered from sin. And yet, it says afterward, God destroyed them that believed not. So what's Jude telling us here? Or what's God telling us? That's right. Don't think that just because you were initially delivered, the battle's over. Don't think that you can just turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and it's like, oh, Jesus saved me. Whew, it's great. I'm going to heaven now. I'll just wait till he comes. Watch out. Watch out. Because the majority of those who came through the Red Sea they came out of Egypt. They saw the Red Sea parted. Time after time after time, they murmured and complained because they believed not. Now, let me take you to the book of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Now, what's Paul talking about? If you study the book of Hebrews chapter 3, in Hebrews chapter 3 he says, We have the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. He's a better leader than Moses, even though Moses was a great leader. And you better watch out, because the children of Israel, our forefathers, they had the best leader God could have given them, Moses, and yet they murmured and complained. Their heart was hardened through unbelief. They did not enter in because of what? Unbelief. So we need to be afraid because they had the gospel preached to them, but what did they lack? They lacked faith. So what are we talking about here? This is actually righteousness by faith. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of salvation unto all who what? Believe. And that word means faith. 
and for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So here's the thing. Jude is saying, you better watch out. If you don't have righteousness by faith, the same thing is going to happen to you that happened to the children of Israel of old. So one of the key issues in the great controversy is righteousness by faith. What is it? The false teaching is turning righteousness by faith, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Because listen, we all need God's grace. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single one of us needs the grace of God. We do. However, Romans 6 very clearly teaches, what, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The grace of God does not give license to sin. And so righteousness by faith, true righteousness by faith, believes in the promise that we can overcome even as Jesus overcame. False righteousness or unbelief turns the grace of God into lasciviousness. So here's the contrast. He's saying, watch out, these teachers have crept in unaware, and they're saying, don't worry, you can just believe, and the grace of God will give you license to sin, but watch out. The children of Israel basically thought that because they were the children of God, they were his chosen people, because he had led them out from Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness, that even though they were demonstrating a lack of faith, a lack of belief, they wouldn't be lost. And so that's the first illustration that, that Jude uses. Hey, if you follow these teachings, it's going to cause you to have unbelief. Do you see that? If you turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, that means you really don't believe in God's saving power. That means you will have unbelief because you are denying Jesus Christ, you don't really believe that he came with the flesh that we have. You really don't believe that you can overcome as he overcame. So you really have unbelief, and God destroyed those who had unbelief in the past. And if he destroyed those who had unbelief in the past, the same thing will happen to us if we have unbelief. Yeah, it's counterfeit righteousness by faith. And not only the children of Israel... He talks about the fallen angels, verse 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. These were perfect beings in a perfect environment, and they lost their heaven. They, they, lost, they were in eternity, and they left it. They lost it. So listen, if the children of Israel who saw the miracles of God could still be lost, and if the angels who were in a perfect environment, if they could be lost, listen, we are weak, sinful humans, and we better watch out and avoid falling into the trap of these false teachings that will lead us away from the true righteousness by faith, the true belief. Now let me just say something briefly about righteousness by faith. Go to Romans 1, 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And this is something that we know very well. And it says, For I am not ashamed of the power of God, for it is the power of salvation unto all who believe, 
to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Okay. Now, the just shall live by faith, that is justification by faith. And what is Paul saying here? He's saying salvation is to everyone who believes. That's to everyone who has faith. Now, why is this so powerful? The power of God. The word for power is dynamis. It's dynamite. It is, it's explosive power. Why is it so powerful? Verse 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. You remember the son of righteousness that clothes the church, the woman? This is what we're talking about. The righteousness of God is revealed in the lives of those who experience the gospel. It's power because it's the righteousness of God that's being demonstrated. Notice, he's saying it's not a legal forensic justification covering only that covers a life of sin. No, in the gospel, in the lives of the just who live by faith, the righteousness of God is revealed. The character of Christ is reproduced. That's the righteousness of God. That's what it means to believe. So to everyone who believes, they will believe in receiving the righteousness of God, the power of God that demonstrates the character of God to the world. And Ellen White then says, this is Review and Herald, April 1, 1890, several have written to me inquiring of me if the message of justification by faith is the message of the third angel. And she says, it is the third angel's message in verity. And then right after that, she says, light, power, and glory will attend this message wherever it is preached. And then she quotes Revelation 18 where it says, I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power, and the earth was lightened with its glory. So she connects the third angel's message and righteousness by faith and the demonstration of the character of Christ with the loud cry when the character of Christ will be demonstrated to the world because in the lives of the believers will the character of Christ be demonstrated but what these false teachers are bringing into the church is saying you don't really need to worry about being like Jesus just let him cover your life he'll forgive your sin he is merciful he is gracious he is loves you he loves you he accepts you as you are and he doesn't change you he'll just cover you he accepts you, yes, but he changes you. But they don't take that part. And so they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, and they're like, and by the way, Jesus was different from us anyway. So since he's different from us, we can't really be like him. We can't really overcome as he overcame. And what you end up getting is the teaching of Antichrist, saying you can do whatever you want. Okay, let's keep going. Let's go back to the book of Jude. And so then he compares it even to Sodom and Gomorrah. They gave themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh. They're set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Why does Jude use Sodom and Gomorrah as an illustration here? Here's why. He is saying, if you accept these teachings and turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, you will eventually become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now just look at the world around us. Now this is the amazing thing to me about the Christian world today, and I'm speaking primarily of the United States of America. You turn on your Christian radio station, I do it in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, that's the heavy part of the Bible Belt, trust me. And they're, they're good people, I like the people in my town, but listen, you'll hear them say on the radio, we're a Christian nation. We need to get back to God. Our morals are falling apart. And you know what? A lot of what they're saying is true. Our morals are falling apart. People need to get back to God. But here's the irony. 
the Christian churches are fostering this theology that says, God will just cover you. You can't really change. And so his mercy and grace will cover you. You're going to just keep sinning. It's okay. Jesus loves you. But here's what they're doing. They have created the environment that allows the world to say that that causes the world and even people in the church to turn into Sodom and Gomorrah because if you take that teaching and just follow it to its conclusion you're saying oh well if I'm covered why does it matter if I go out and live the way the Sodomites and the Gomorrahites lived I mean I'm covered by the grace of God anyway where sin abounds grace does much more abound and then the church, after a while, they step back and they say, wow, look at society. This is horrible. There's gay marriage now. There's murders in the streets. There's abortion. There's this. There's that. There's whatever. This is awful. And yet it's their very theology, Babylonian theology, Antichrist theology, that has created this very condition. So how are they going to try to correct it? They're going to go to their mother church of Rome and say, please help us to get our country back in order. You make some laws to get people to follow God again. Do you see what happens? Because they have gone away from the true teaching of Scripture. Okay. Let's keep going. Verse 8. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignity. So, I mean, listen, Jude is using very poignant, colorful language here. These are his words. What does he describe these false teachers as being? Dreamers, they defile the flesh, despise dominion, speak evil of dignities. So what do we know about these false teachers? Well, they defile the flesh, so in other words, they are not overcoming, right? They are defiling their flesh. They've turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. They are living a life of sin. Yet they claim to be following God. And not only that, they despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. In other words, they speak against authority. Now, what did we see was the authority that God has based this church on? In Revelation chapter 12, you have the sun, the moon, and the stars. The sun represents Christ. The moon represents the prophets who point us back to the word of God and to Christ. And then you have the stars, which represent the leadership of the church under apostolic authority who are faithful to the word of God. Yet these false teachers despise that dominion. They despise the dominion of Christ. They despise the dominion of the prophets. And they despise godly leadership. Listen, if you hear teachers speaking against Christ, speaking against the prophets, especially Ellen White, and speaking against godly leaders in the church, you better watch out. They're fulfilling this prophecy. Okay, now, the question is, how do we contend against these people, right? Because the human, the human tendency would be to say, man, we've got to go after them with guns blazing and so on and so forth. Well, let's see from Scripture, how do we, go, how do we contend? Because verse 3 says we need to earnestly contend for the faith. Verse 9, yet Michael the archangel when contending. See that? So we are to earnestly contend. Michael is contending with Satan. So Michael is going to work through us to contend for the faith. Satan is working through these false teachers to contend for the faith. So we could learn something 
when contending against the forces of evil by how Michael or Christ contended against Satan, right? So yet Michael, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, did not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Okay, so what can we learn from that verse about contending for the faith? What does that mean? The Lord rebuke thee. You don't argue with them or like accuse them back. Exactly. Michael, he is God. He has the authority to just say, the Lord rebuke thee. And when he speaks, he is speaking what? The word of God. How do we contend for the faith then? With the word of God. You know, sometimes I've been in discussions with people or I've seen discussions where there's perhaps theological disagreement and so on and so forth and you'll hear raised voices and accusations you're being dishonest with that passage that's not what it means you're just this you're just that blah 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 and I've seen that come on no when we contend for the faith what we simply say is the Bible says. Someone may say, well, I think this, or I, and you know, that, this is one of my pet peeves. You go to Sabbath school class, and we're discussing the lesson, and you'll, you'll discuss a passage of scripture, and the passage of scripture says black is black and white is white. And someone will raise their hand and say, yeah, but I think blah, 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 blah. Well, you know what? We as God's people, when we are contending for the faith, we don't care what any human thinks. We just want to know what the Word of God says. And when Christ contended with Satan over the body of Moses, he simply used the Word of God. We need to learn to do that. Rather than saying, well, I think, well, I think, well, I think. You know, there's plenty of opinions to go around in the church, but what I want to know is, what does the Bible say? That is how we will earnestly contend for the faith. These false teachers have twisted the word of God, and by twisting the word of God, they have denied our Lord Jesus Christ. They are saying he didn't really come in the flesh, and now they have taken on the assumption of Antichrist. This is how the Antichrist developed in the first century church. This unbelief has come in, and Christ contends against this whole system by using the word of God. So in this great controversy warfare, what we learn from Michael is to use the word of God. And what happens in this situation? Moses gets resurrected because the word of God has creative power to win the battle. Amen. Don't use your opinions. Don't use your I think, well, I think, well, I think. Just use the word of God. Now, one other thing. And I'll... I might mention this further down the road. Sometimes I peop hear people say, if you try to use the spirit of prophecy, they say, well, I'm sola scriptura. You've you got to show me from the Bible. Well, okay, well, let me, let me say this to you. Are you really sola scriptura? Because what does the Bible teach us? The Bible teaches us that God's last day church will have the spirit of prophecy. So if you are against the spirit of prophecy under the premise of being sola scriptura, you're actually really against the Bible and you're not really sola scriptura. 
So be careful with that line of reasoning. Listen, when, when, the Bi when the Bible says what it says, it means what it says. And if Ellen White says something that is as clear as day, please don't try to hide under that by saying, well, but you can't prove that to me from the Bible. Because if you take the time to do it, you can. Sometimes she just makes it a lot clearer and it just gives you a, a, a very clear, quick, modern English statement of what God wants us to be doing. Okay. So we contend by using the word of God. Now let's continue. This is interesting. We're going to get into some key issues here. Picking it up in verse 10. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things they corrupt themselves. So in other words, they speak against authority. They don't really know what they're talking about. They're just... It says, but what they know naturally as brute beasts and those things they corrupt themselves. Now, what do you think Jude is meaning here? It says, they speak evil against what they don't know, and they just use their experience as brute beasts in those things they corrupt themselves. Listen, Jude is making this very interesting. We have to realize that we, and I, I've heard Pastor Skeet say this in the past, we're dirt, right? We were made out of dust. And out of our mouth can come dirt. We were created in the image of God, but because we have sinned, we've defaced that image. We have tendencies that will pull us away from God. And if we are not following God, Scripture describes us as brute beasts. Okay? Now, what is Jude saying here? This is what he's saying. What they know naturally as brute beasts or as fallen human beings, in those things they corrupt themselves. They say things like, so they speak evil against what they don't know, and then they allow their human experience to define that. And they say, oh, well, the Bible says that I can overcome, but in my experience, I haven't seen anyone who overcomes. Have you heard that? Well, the Bible says that, that God can keep me from falling, but show me a person who's experienced it. I haven't seen that. I don't know that. I have to go with what my human experience is telling me. So as a brute beast, as a fallen human, I don't see it. And what they're doing is they're speaking evil against what they don't know. They haven't seen. They haven't experienced with faith what God wants them to experience. So be careful when teachers come in and use their human experience and say, well, my human experience contradicts what's the word, what the word of God says, they're following the model of the book of Jude, which Jude says, earnestly contend against such thinking. All right. Continuing. Verse 11. Now, verse 11, this is where things are going to get very interesting. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Okay. So here are our three examples that these leaders are following. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Well, that's not, those are not the Bible characters you want to be compared to, right? But that's what, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude is doing. Now, let's talk about these three characters. What's the way of Cain? He killed his brother. Why did he kill his brother? 
Yeah, he was angry with Abel. And what was he angry with Abel over? Well, that's right. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Cain's was not. This sacrifice was an act of what? An act of worship. So what do we know about Cain? What was his worship? False worship. Okay. So Cain offers false worship before God. And from Cain came the line that we call the seed of men. From Seth came the seed of God, so to speak, or the, I mean the sons of God. And from Cain came the son, sons of men. Cain offered false worship. Specifically, he offered a sacrifice that God had not asked him to make. And he said, God, this is the fruit of my life. Accept it. I know you said to offer a lamb, but I'm going to offer my best fruits that I've produced. God, I love you. This is the context of my life. This is the context of my culture. This is the context of who I am. I'm a gardener. Abel's a shepherd, so yeah, he'll bring a sheep. I'm a gardener, I'll bring fruit from my garden. Please understand that he has a different lifestyle, a different line of work, a different culture, a different way of worshiping. You need to accept my worship. And when God didn't accept his worship, what does Cain do? He persecutes the true worshiper of God. So what are these teachers, what are they doing? They are bringing in false worship, and when their worship is not accepted of God, they persecute those who who do follow God. Now let me read you a quote from Ellen White that describes false worship in the last days. You've probably heard, some of you have probably heard this before, but it's worth hearing again. It comes under the, the subtitle, Worship with a Bedlam of Noise. This is Second Selected Messages, page 36. It is impossible to estimate too largely the work that the Lord will accomplish through his proposed vessels in carrying out his mind and purpose. The things you have described as taking place in Indiana, the Lord has shown me would take place just before the close of probation. Okay, now we're going to talk about something that will happen in our worship among God's people when? Just before the close of probation. That's really in the last days. Okay. Every uncouth thing will be demonstrated. There will be shouting with drums, music, and dancing. The senses of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to make right decisions. And this is called the moving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never, it doesn't say most of the time, doesn't it? She says, the Holy Spirit never reveals itself in such methods, in such a bedlam of noise. This is an invention of Satan to cover up his ingenious methods for making of none effect the pure, sincere, elevating, ennobling, sanctifying truth for this time. Listen, if your worship service has become overrun by dancing, drums, shouting, clapping, screaming, cartwheels down the aisle, and you name it. Your rational mind for worshiping God has departed. 
And the origin from where that music is coming from is straight from Satan. It's causing you to get this feel-good thing. Oh, I love the rhythm. It's making me feel good. I'm going to worship God with all my heart. Now, this is amazing. Woo! And yet, what has happened is the Holy Spirit is not being revealed. It's a false spirit. And listen, Cain, he brought in false worship. And these false teachers, they go in the way of Cain. They bring in false worship. Because, listen, the grace of God, it covers us. If we can do whatever we want, we can worship him however we want. We can worship him based on the context of our culture, based on the context of our human experience, based on the context of our background, and we don't need to worry about, the wor about what the word of God says about worship. We don't need to worry about what the spirit of prophecy says about worship. We can just turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, deny the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and just worship him how we want to worship him the way Cain did. That's what these false teachers are bringing into the church. Now, I see hands going up. We don't have time right now, but I will take questions at the end. Okay, so not only have they gone in the way of Cain, they have also ran greedily after the error of Balaam. Boy, that's a great, not a great comparison. Now, let me take you to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 2. Forgive me. This is to the angel of the church in Pergamos. And when you get to verse 14... Christ says, I have a few things. This is Revelation 2.14. I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. So um, basically what they did there is they ate food sacrificed to idols. He got the children of Israel to commit fornication with, a, with women just before they entered into the promised land. Ellen White tells us that's going to happen to, to people again just before the second coming. Unfortunately, we've seen that happen. Um, so here's what happens. Balaam and, and Judah saying, you know, it, it's, it's this issue of going greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. And there's also the issue of eating food, sacrificing the idols, and committing fornication. Listen, Balaam was a prophet of God. He was a minister for God, but he had an opportunity to profit off of it. I mean, this is the simple um, connection we can make here. If you are in the Lord's work with the idea that you can make some good money off of it while you're at it, you are in the wrong business. That's what Balaam was trying to do. And here's what happens. When you go into the Lord's work, oh, grace of God into lasciviousness, we can just get people to follow the grace of God. We can get large followers after us because they're going to like this teaching. They're going to listen to what we have to say. We can worship God however we want, and they're going to pay us money to follow after us. We can make a good living doing this. And then they take it even further because what happens is when money or whatever it is, prestige, power, authority, whatever you want to call it, going for reward, whatever it may be in your mind, you will go to extreme measures to get what you desire. Balaam 
was so desperate to get that money that Balak offered him, when he couldn't curse the children of Israel, he became so desperate, he said, okay, I know how you can get them. Go send the women in among the men in their tents and you'll get them to fall. You know, Ellen White says that, um, and this is Great Controversy, page 608, that a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message will depart from the faith because they have, been not, they have not been sanctified by obedience to the truth. So they didn't experience sanctification. And then she says they become our worst enemies. They will speak against us. So listen, these false teachers, they're bringing in false worship, and then they are going to go to extremes, whatever it takes to get God's people to fall. And it says Balaam caused God's people to commit fornication. These false teachers will get God's professed people to believe in their message of the grace of God being turned into lasciviousness. And in Revelation 17, it says that Babylon commits fornication with the, thing, with the kings of the earth. God's people who follow these teachings will eventually commit fornication with Babylon as well. So these false teachers, if you go after Cain, if you go after Balaam, you are going to follow after Babylon. Now, this next one is very interesting. They perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Korah, who was Korah? Korah was the cousin of Moses. What was Korah's problem? Korah wanted a position of authority and leadership that God had not chosen or ordained for him to have. God had ordained Moses to be the leader of the children of Israel. And Korah said, this isn't fair. With my background, with my training, with my talents, with my abilities, I should be able to lead in the same way. I want to have the same position, the same authority, to have the same ordained power from God to do what Moses is able to do. So not only do they bring in false worship, not only do they bring in fornication that leads to Babylon, they bring in a spirit that tries to usurp the true authority of leadership that God has placed in the church. Now let me ask you a question. If you've been thinking at all, based on what I was just saying, are we seeing that happen in the church today? Yes. You better believe it. 1 Timothy chapter 3 makes it very clear, and I'll read it to you. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, this is a true saying, verse 1, if, it, it is, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. You, you go on to verse 4, one that ruleth well his own house. Now listen, what Paul is saying is this, and he says this in Ephesians 5. The husband is the head of the wife the way Christ is the head of the church. And the husband is the head of the wife in his home. And if he rules his house well, then he can be a bishop or a minister in the church. 
However, what happens is you have false teachers who come and they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. God will cover you with his righteousness even if you're sinning. Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. We don't really have to believe. We don't really have to overcome the way Jesus overcame. We, should, we can worship God the way we want. We can go after the way of Balaam. We can join up forces with Babylon and become one with them. And eventually they say, hey, what's this whole gender discrimination so that women can't be ordained to ministry? It's happening in our very church. We have gifts. We have talent. We have all these things. We should have the same ordination. We should be ordained equally. We should be given the same power. That is the position that we deserve. And that's the way Korah was. You know what? Korah had all the gifts, all the talents, all the, the education and background, and you name it, but God didn't call him to that position. And there's, there are plenty of talented women in the church today I know several of them who, they aren't seeking to be ordained. They serve God in the way that God has ordained them to, be, to serve him, not to be in a position of authority. Because listen, if you're going to rule over the house of God, you need to be able to rule over your own house. And scripture is very clear that the husband is to rule over his house with the spirit of Christ. So this whole issue of women's ordination in the church today is just a symptom of the fact that these false teachers are trying to overrun the church. And they try to twist the word of God. Did God really say? And I mean, I heard even one speaker who he spent most of his time just using pejorative labels for those who believe that women shouldn't be ordained. And he only spent the last few minutes laying out his case from the Bible, which was very weak. Because when you don't have a case from the Bible, you just use labels for the other side rather than letting the Bible speak for itself. We need to just be like Michael, Christ. Let the word of God speak. Okay, I'm running out of time, so let me just wrap up here. Um, basically, verses 12 and 13 continue on, saying that these leaders, these false teachers, don't have any fruit. Verse 14 is showing Enoch tells of the time that a judgment will come. Verse 15 says the same thing. A judgment will come against those who have followed after this way. And verses 16 through 18, again, same thing. It talks about how they're murmurers, complainers, like the children of Israel. They walk after their own lust. Their mouth speaketh great swelling words. Does that remind you of a prophetic power described in Daniel? He shall speak great words against the Most High. Here's the scary thing. When you follow after this model, you develop the spirit of Antichrist, you speak great words against the Most High, you eventually become like Cain, Balaam, and Korah, and you develop the spirit of Antichrist. So you have this prophetic Antichrist power that develops, but listen, Satan is trying to bring that spirit into members of God's remnant church. That's this last controversy that's taking place. And so, um, verse 18, or 17 and 18, Jude says, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own godly lust. These be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the spirit. And then he wraps up, and this is where we'll close, verse 20. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And if some have compassion making a difference and others save with fear pulling them out of the fire hating even the garment spotted by the flesh so in other words some people you need to use one method use mercy others you need to grab them by the collar and pull them out of the fire they need to be woken up and then 
verse 24. This is the context. You know, we always read verse 24, but this is the context of verse 24. Now unto him that is, the, that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. So these false teachers turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, but Judas saying, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, to keep you from sinning, and to present you faultless. Now, do you, can you think of a place in the book of Revelation that describes a group of people who are faultless? The 144,000 in Revelation 14. They are without fault before the throne of God because they allowed God to keep them from falling. Amen. The book of Jude is a contest between Christ and Satan, between the false teachings that will come into the church. And if you follow after those teachings, you're going to receive the mark of the beast. But if you follow the true teachings, if you earnestly contend for the faith, if you allow the Lord to be the savior of your life, to be the redeemer of your life, to be the sanctifier of your life, so that you are kept from falling, a day is coming when you will stand without fault before the throne of God because he has kept you. That's what the book of Jude is about. I want to be a part of that group, amen? amen. What we're going to do in our last two sessions, we are going to develop from the book of Daniel how Michael prepares his last day people to stand and the, the, the final conflict that Satan throws at his church. So we're going to get into Daniel 10. We're going to get into Daniel 11 and 12. So if you want to know more about Daniel 11, you'll want to come back for our afternoon sessions. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you that you make things clear to us. And I pray that we would be among those who earnestly contend for the faith. May we not be like these false teachers who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. May we follow on to know you fully and completely. And may you keep us from falling. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.